Today, we continue in our series, Unforgettable Lessons for Forgotten, from Forgotten Kings. We talked about Rehoboam a couple weeks ago. Last week was Jeroboam, and now we get to Ahab. And Ahab and his dear wife Jezebel stirred up a lot of trouble. Jezebel and trouble, that works together, doesn't it? Stirred up a lot of trouble in Israel. In fact, he was considered by God as the worst king ever. So let's look at what that means, because when you see the context of all the people that went before him in the leadership of Israel, it's kind of astounding. So if we get the chart up, we have actually a very well put together chart of the kings. I can, you can see that exactly. Can you not from there? works, doesn't it? Um, But this will tell you how the things happened, and we have actually paper copies of those out in the atrium, and you can get one if you would like. So now let's focus in a little bit on Ahab. And you can see it started with Jeroboam, who, if you remember, left the kingdom and took 10 tribes with him, and, and poor Rehoboam was left with only one and a part of another. And he was scared as he got started, as Daryl talked about. He set up an alternative worship by saying to people, here is a calf that I have made. We put it in Dan and Bethel and worship this because this is the God that took you out of Israel. And so that was the great sin that he had committed. And so he had a son who followed in that path named Nadab. But Nadab lasted only a year. Yeah. And along came Basha, who decided he wanted to reign. And so he killed Nadab. And then when he got in power, he killed all of Jeroboam's family. Lovely place to be, don't you think? Wouldn't you like to be in the leadership of Israel with that going on? But wait, there's more. Then after 24 years, Elah, Basha's son, took reign. And he lasted a couple years until Zimri came along and decided he wanted to take over. So he killed Elah and all of his family. But the people of Israel were so upset that they took Omri, who was the commander of the king's forces of the armies, and said, you be king. And so all of the armies of Israel surrounded the capital. And when Zimri saw that all was lost after having reigned for seven whole days... He burned the palace down around him. Okay, and so now Ahab is the worst ever. How can you get much worse than what you just heard, right? It's tough. But he and his wife Jezebel were part of a cosmic confrontation that was a battle between the gods. And this was witnessed by Thousands of people, 450 priests of Baal, one lone prophet. There was fire falling from heaven. And at at the end of that, after three and a half years of drought, the rain came. So that's what we get to look at today. Well, what is the point of all this drama? It is a contest. Which God is the real God? Is it Baal? Or Jehovah, the God of Israel. This whole incident started a few years after Ahab took power. 
Elijah came and stood in his courtroom and said this. This is gutsy, thinking about all the slaughter that had gone around that kingdom. And Elijah stood up and said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he disappeared quick and was gone for three and a half years. (laughs) And so after the end of three and a half years, even though the armies of all Israel were searching for him to try to get him, they couldn't find him until it was right time. And he came and showed himself to Ahab. And that's, we'll we'll read what happens um, as we read in 1 Kings 18 20 to 39. It's a long passage, but it's pretty dramatic, so I think you should hold your attention. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Ahab, excuse me, went throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given to them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! Baal, answer us! They shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. 
With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said, Fill four jars with water, four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Let's pray. Well, wait a minute. Got to finish that, don't we? Then, then, then the fire fell. See, if it hadn't happened then, it would be a tough time, right? Then the fire fell. Um, the Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water from the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you that you showed yourself real to this generation of people in Israel. And we pray that you would again show yourself real today to those of us who are gathered here to worship you, to learn of you. And I love the promise that you gave that the people of Israel would know that he is turning their hearts toward you again. And I pray that you would do that here. Set aside my weak and fumbling words, and through it, O God, through these words of yours, set our hearts on fire for you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's a sermon in a sentence. Since someone will worship someone or something, since everyone will worship someone or something, you can choose between something that will demand more than you can give or someone who can supply more than you will ever need. Let's hear that again. Since everyone will worship someone or something, you can choose between something that will demand more than you can give or someone who can supply more than you will ever need need. Now, the reason that Ahab was the worst king ever is that instead of saying, here's a calf and this is really the God of Israel, he brought in Baal and the prophets and the Asherah and said, these are your God and had people worship. So he took people completely away and said, this is the real God. And that was why we had this contest. So why the challenge? Again, how can you know which is the true God, Baal or Jehovah? That was the challenge at that moment. 
And Elijah said to the people of Israel, how long will you waver or limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Nothing. Why? Because they had been caught in the quagmire between do I trust God of Israel or do I trust Baal, who is the real God? And they were kind of happy with both things. You know, they wanted Baal for all the things he could do. He was the God of fertility. So they had good crops, good animals that reproduce well, wives and all of these things. That was what they thought Baal could bring them. And that's why God had three and a half years of drought prior to this event because he was saying to all of Israel, Baal, the God of fertility who brings rain so that you can have crops, he doesn't got it, right? He hasn't got it. So, but these people were kind of caught in that. And when we get idols in our lives, we kind of do that sort of thing. Well, this God is good, but there's another thing over here on the side that I really like. And so... There was no answer from from Israel because they were wavering between those options. So why the challenge? There is no neutrality. There can be no neutrality when it comes to God. Either he's God or he's not. And that's what was happening here. Intellectually, we hear people say, well, there are many paths up the mountains, and so there are many ways to get to God. And the thing is, they all get to heaven somehow. We all get to God. But in order to make that statement, you have to know all the paths. You have to test them out. You have to see if they're really valid. And no one has the capacity to do all of that with the thousands of religions that are around, or each little bitty God that goes. So intellectually, it's arrogant to say, that we can say that every religion is good and they all lead to God because it's not. We can't prove it. So psychologically, when we say we, let's be all inclusive and every religion is good, we think we're being inclusive, but in fact, we're also being dogmatic when we say that, are we not? Every religion is right and good and every religion t- gets you to God that's an absolute statement it's a dogmatic statement and so when we're being inclusive we're really without knowing it being exclusive and arrogant and then culturally when we say that all religions are the same we do violence to every religion on the face of the earth we just do violence because <clears throat> We can't, we just pass over what people say they believe. We put it down as nothing. So that's offensive. Tim Keller, a number of years ago, had a debate with an um, imam from um, Islam. And after they had talked and both had set their points of view forward, there was a man who came up in the audience during the question and answer session and said, well, aren't you both really saying the same thing? And both Keller and the imam that were debating together took great offense at that because they, he had just pulled out the heart of both of these points of view and said they're nothing. Everything's the same when, in fact, Keller and the imam were saying completely different things. There can be no 
neutrality. So, how do you recognize a false god? That's one right there. I say that because it was, for a short time, a false god for me. About 12 years ago or so, I was needing a new car, and I started searching online for one that I, th- I thought would be good, and I came across the Xterra. Oh, man, it was cool. You know, it was off-roading, and, and you can get the package, you know, with all, it's all souped up with a, a transmission automatic, not automatic, but manual transmission, and I even found one in a dealer that I could get, and I was all excited, and I went to Carol and said, I, I'd like to get this car. We can go off-roading. And she started to giggle. She said, when was the last time that we ever went off-roading? Never. Oh. And what about our decision to watch our finances and not buy a new car, but buy a used car? Oh. And I, had, I found that my heart had gotten wrapped around the idea that I could be rugged in and out doorsman and I could do all these things and and that car represented that reality to me and I realized what was happening after I went to work and cogitated for a little while because I wasn't happy with her response you you, you got to know that right so but I realized that This thing was pulling me away from values that I had set. This thing was creating a space, making an image for me that really was not from God. And so, it wasn't an easy decision, but I bought a four-door sedan. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, uh, yeah. So, (laughs) when you take any created thing and begin to orient your life around it, it becomes your Baal, your God. And it's amazing how subtly that can work into you. So it's good to have others around you that can say, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's up with this? So that's how you can recognize a false Idol. When you reach out to something that you think will help you, some created thing, some cause, some person, some desire, some substance, you think it's going to do all these wonderful things for you, and then it begins to take control of your life and takes you to places that you don't want to go, like the, the prophets of Baal. You see... <clears throat> It's, it's a bad spot. Now, some of you, would, let's get real here. Some of you who know me know that I drive an Xterra. Yeah. About four years after I bought this four-door sedan, I needed another car, and I looked at the Xterra again. But my heart was altogether different. I didn't buy the souped-up off-road manual transmission thing. I bought a practical, serviceable vehicle, which has been great, and I've been driving it now for eight years and have 150,000 miles on it. It is not a glamour car. But, you see, the mark of Baal worship, or worship of false idols, is role reversal. Because you look to the God, to to the God or to the idol to do something for you, and what it begins to do is demand more and more 
and more. And when you don't get the satisfaction, you do things that take you outside of your comfort zone. You do things that hurt you, hurt your family and others. And it takes on a life of its own and can take you down a path that is destructive, just like it did for the prophets of Baal. See, when they first, they spent the whole morning dancing around and crying out, nothing happened. So when they realized that time was getting past them. What did they do? They started cutting themselves, slashing themselves, stabbing themselves so that they could get something. They were harming themselves. And that's what a false idol will do to you. It takes you down that broken, dangerous, destructive path. So, you know, that's kind of a good definition for addiction, isn't it? To look to a substance, to a relationship, to an idea to a reputation for yourself or others, and it grabs you and takes you places that you really didn't intend to go to at all. So that's how you recognize a false god. It leaves you feeling more empty, more dissatisfied, and even shameful for having gone as far as you have to satisfy the compulsion that is within you. So now we have a new question. How do you know if you have had an encounter with, a tr- with the true God? See, it's not enough to know God intellectually. We have to have had an encounter with him. And that's what happened here at Mount Carmel with the Baal priests and with Elijah. You see, as I said earlier, Baal was the god of rain, the god of fertility, and God had closed the heavens for three and a half years just to prove the point that he was God. And so they came to this mountain to test who's the real God. But before God sent the rain, the fire had to come first. Before he sent the rain, the fire had to come first. Why? Because if he had just sent the rain, then everybody in Israel would say, hey, we got it good. He's sending the rain. That must have been Baal. We're okay. We can just stay as we are. It's good enough. So before the rain came, God sent the fire. Hmm. And it comes in the form for us, something that shocks us, something that sets us back something that convinces you that you cannot do life on your own, that you cannot make it, that the gods that you have created for yourself won't stand the test of that reality. God does not like the brokenness of this world, but sometimes he uses it to create an opportunity to encounter him. So, as we look at what happened there on Mount Carmel, notice where the fire came down. So you see, we'd had all the the, uh, Baal prophets jazzing it up over there, and then quietly, quietly, Elijah says to the people of Israel, come over here. So I imagine there was one spot far away, and then here was the new spot, and all the people came over, and he said, gather around. And so he built the altar, he put the wood on, he put the, uh, the bull on, and then they doused it with water so that it was, nobody could say it could have been an accidental spark that started it. And then he prays this simple, quiet prayer. 
so much in opposition to what the craziness of the Baalites did. And he says, God, answer me. Answer me. Send fire so that all these people will know that you are the true God. And as he quietly prayed, out of a clear blue sky, with no thunderclouds, no indication of a storm, a lightning bolt came down and and consumed the bull, consumed the wood, consumed the stones, consumed all of the water. And I don't know if you've been near uh, a lightning strike, but I remember when I was a kid and um, we were playing baseball and one came down about 50 feet away from us. And I tell you, you could feel the reverberation. And it was a small one, and it was 50 feet away. But here are all these people, and this thing came down. They had to feel the shock. And all of a sudden, they realized that all the things that they had thought were true, that we could live with both gods, were a lie. And what did they respond? How did they respond? They fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I imagine that went on for quite a while because after you've had that sort of experience, you would say, the Lord, he is God. There is no doubt. When Jesus came to this earth, he said, I have come to bring fire on the earth. How I wish it it was already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo And what constraint I am under until it is completed. You see, he knew that fire had to fall on the earth. But he knew where the fire had to fall. See, because the fire, when when the Israelites were together, fell on the sacrifice. Not on all the people who had turned their hearts away from God and were deserting him. It fell on the sacrifice so that God accepted that sacrifice. And now Jesus has come and the fire, the wrath of God fell upon Jesus and it took him into the grave. That's why he came. So that we could experience the grace that comes from him. He took that upon himself, the wrath of God, the fire of God, so that we could have an open, unhindered, loving relationship with God. We don't have to do anything to prove it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to chant for it. We don't have to do anything except to realize that the fire should have fallen on us because of the things we have done wrong. But God chose not to judge us, but to judge Jesus in our place so that we could know him. We can't say, I'm going to let these things that have much effect on me, not, not, I'm not going to let them have much effect on me. I, we can't grit it out. The only way we can get free of those things is by the fire of God falling on 
Jesus. The God of success can no longer hound you because the one who died on the cross took the fire of judgment and will impart his ultimate success to you, which is to be free of the brokenness and sin that you have and have an open relationship with God. So, a number of years ago, I was in Switzerland at Labrie there with Francis Schaeffer. Some of you may know him. He was a theologian and philosopher. I had the privilege of spending three months in that community. And in the evenings, we would go down in the mountain, to go down the mountain to the chapel, and we would have talks on various things. And then at the end of the, the time, we would walk up the mountain to our chalet. And so there was a group of five or six of us that were walking up this path. And it was a moonless night. And there were no lights on this path. So we were walking up this path, and literally the mountain was right here, and you could just put your hand on it. It was going up almost 45 degrees up or even steeper. Then on this side, there was a row of fir trees, and no light came through those fir trees. So we were walking rather carefully (laughs) because we couldn't really see where we were going. And then somebody stopped and said, look. And we looked up. And right there in that narrow strip of sky, we could see the Milky Way. And living in an urban environment, I hadn't seen that before at that kind of impact. And the longer we looked up into the sky, the brighter it became. The, the, the power of, this, of the Milky Way began to overtake the darkness as our eyes became more and more sensitive. And in the middle of that, there was my friend Keenan who had been at Libri for some months and was struggling with who God is and what relationship he would have with him. And as we were looking up, we heard a thud. And Kenan fell on his knees and said, you are the true God. He had an encounter. And we all knelt around him and we prayed with him and joy because God had revealed his goodness and grace to Kenan at that moment. That's why Jesus took the fire for you. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you let us experience you, that you have removed whatever may be the hindrances between you and us. And so we gladly release our hearts to you, knowing that we are safe in your almighty presence. We ask this.